If you've ever been in that ring, you understand. It doesn't matter what you can do or even how you can do it. If that guy across from you is trash, that crowd will eat you alive. This whole thing's a team sport. Most don't know that. Now, imagine if you're actually in a tag team. Not only do you have to do your thing hard enough, and you better hope the guy across from you can do his thing, but now you gotta be sure your partner's thing works with his partner's thing, and vice versa. Plus you with his partner, etc., etc. Somehow coordinating all y'all's things with each other. I'm no mathematician, but that's like seven or something combinations, all of which could go downhill by the first lockup. I really don't know how they do it. You gotta be born to work with a partner. Or maybe it's that you guys had to be born to work together. Most of us thought Sammy and Marlon had that connection, but the way they've been stinking up our house shows lately was saying otherwise. These guys call themselves the Brain Busters, and they earned that name with the amount of headbutting they did during a show. For the most part, they filled the mid-card about as good as you could ask, and anyone would say they were the best tag team we had. But they had been a little off for the past few shows. Nothing we could put our fingers on, just missing beats and little annoying botches here and there. Like I said, if you ask me, it's a miracle a tag match ever works. Leon took it upon himself to carve a little time out of his very busy schedule to work with the Busters. Being by far the most experienced coach in the gym, he usually worked with classes of beginners, but when the big shots needed some advanced instruction, he was the only option. Almost right away, he diagnosed that there was a certain missing juju element. He said that the moves were strong, their fitness levels were prime, and just about every other match element was running perfectly. What they needed was to find their common ground again, which was no easy task. But if they did it right, that ground would be even higher than it was before this little bump in the road. Leon spoke about how a tag team is no more than a fusion of spirits. Not all spirits go together. And if you were partnering with someone who wasn't compatible, then you'd never be great. But everyone has some kind of connection with their fellow man. We're all human after all, and we were designed to work with each other. He said when it came to the Busters, he couldn't quite say yet if they had that special connection that all great teams had, but with enough work, they'd find enough linkage to at least put on a solid show until they broke the team up and went on their singles runs, if that's what they wanted. Leon took Marlon and Sammy through a steady diet of drills and combinations, and they hit them all like pros. But when they built a match with opponents, even in the practice ring, all problems kept coming right back. Finally, after one especially egregious practice, Leon gathered the busters together and told them that he had seen something like this before. He said back when he was working gigs in West Philly, he had run into an absolutely dynamite, his words, tag team known as Sword and Stone. As soon as we heard those words, the entire gym knew. We all ran to the practice ring and circled around Leon. Because when he started saying things like when and back then, it meant only one thing, a story. Leon said that Kellen Sword Monkton and Paul Stone Kneerum started working together right out the gate when they would do shows for their neighborhood. This was right in the hottest part of the 90s where backyard wrestling was the only place to be. The duo had been friends since childhood, and they had no shortage of stories of their own misbehaving, far too much for our limited time. Anyway, these boys fell into rotation of the biggest backyard shows in the Commonwealth, and it didn't take very long for them to become one of the premier draws. At only 16 years of age, the pair had developed a style entirely new to the field. High flyers by nature, 
They were known for constructing some of those fantastic launching pads these crowds had ever seen. Just one example was a complete-to-scale model of the Center City Wawa, made entirely out of some old wood pallets and a little spray paint. Sword climbed with that thing like a spider monkey, and like clockwork, Stone speared their mark a split second before Sword vaulted off the sign's trademark bird and hit his legendary Excalibur, where he'd come down, feet to the sky, and elbow right into the opponent's gut. Things were going great for these kids, and soon they were booking spots in New York, Orlando, and all the major spots on the East Coast scene. They made some good cash, had a few title runs, and even got some guest spots on smaller televised promotions. Seen by all accounts that Sword and Stone were set to become the next big thing. Then, it all went to hell. No one knew what happened. They had their falling out, but the loyalty was still there, so no one expected any details to make their way to the mainstream. Either that, or what happened was so embarrassing to both that they mutually agreed to keep quiet. Anyway, it happened. Just like that, Sword and Stone was no more. Each wrestler decided to take some time away from the racket, and as we all know in this business, any time away from the ring is time these crowds will happily use to forget you entirely. About six months or so later, the names started coming up on bills again. It turned out that not only were the boys comfortable as singles, but they weren't too shabby either. Now, they were nothing like they were when complimenting their skills like they used to, but they could fill a low to mid car with the best of them. Fast forward a couple years, and now the single sword and stone had pretty much cemented their place in the West Philly jobbing corps. If you needed a pro to give the marks a show while putting over a new talent, or maybe giving a little legitimacy to a visiting champ, sword or stone would be your guy. Of course, this was not the career either had imagined, and at the back of their minds they had to have known that if they had just buried the hatchet and set things straight, they could end up touring again and possibly even grabbing that elusive WWF tryout. But just like the diuturnal materials that made up their stage names, they were no less stubborn. The day finally came when it seemed as if their luck had changed. Both boys had received an offer to tour a few cities up north around Peterborough, Ontario. This was the biggest shot they'd gotten in years, and they needed to take it without question. However, since they hadn't had any real luck since their days as Sword and Stone, the boys still shared a car. Since Canada was a long ways north, they would need to carpool, meaning hours upon hours of isolated togetherness, which was asking a lot considering that the only time they ever communicated was in sticky notes to coordinate the use of their car. If they wanted to take what could be their last shot at any makings of a legitimate pro wrestling career, they would have to bite the bullet and buckle up. After a little bratty hesitation, they both made the decision to drive up together and tour the Great North. The sticky notes were clear that this did not mean they needed to talk or even acknowledge each other's existence. Fortunately, their matches were for the most part not concurrent, and outside of the car rides and motel rooms, they could keep their distance. All in all, it seemed a small price to pay to continue chasing their dream, not to mention both really needed the cash. So with that, they hit 476 North. Not one word was said between the two across the eight hours or so that they trekked, not even to let the other know they'd be in the john when they stopped for gas. The music covered most of the awkwardness, with the remnants of it only creeping in when one of them had to swap out a Sum 41 CD. Finally, they got to the border. Sword mumbled under his breath, and mostly to himself that they were in Canada now, and after they circled Lake Ontario, they'd make it to their motel in Peterborough. Now, Leon had said that he himself had gone up to parts of the big sea for a few gigs, and he even partied with the Hart family a time or two up in Calgary, so he had seen the real Canada. 
he said that if one ever crosses the border, something about the Great White North, that famously friendly territory, it gets to you, and right away. Though Sword mumbled their journey update mostly to himself, it was still the first words he had said in the vicinity of Stone in almost two years. Stone might have forgotten the timeline himself because he responded quickly with a right-on, effectively making it their first cordial conversation in who knew how long. Those two phrases were the extent of that conversation, but still, all things considered, it was quite the miracle. As Sword and Stone came up on the last 20 miles or so according to their maps, they got the opportunity to drive through one of the most beautiful parts of the country. It was springtime, so the forests were lush and the lakes and rivers were just gorgeous beds of deep blue. Even hard boys like these two couldn't help but check out the views and appreciate something they didn't get too much of in the city. They took in so much, in fact, that they got a little off their path. Sword kept checking the map, still refusing to speak to Stone, and the only thing he could find was that he was lost. This movement further into the wrong direction continued for much longer than necessary, with neither one of the duo wanting to ask what was going on, or if anything looked like it should be where it was. Finally, as Stone mumbled that they were officially two hours behind schedule, Sword violently pulled the car over and got out. In the midst of the foreign wilderness, the pair looked around for any bearings whatsoever among the massive conglomeration of trees, boulders, and rivers. Both went in opposite directions of the deserted preserve, hoping to find some kind of signage or helpful Canuck, but it had seemed by all accounts that they were all alone out there. Stone continued through the forest until he stumbled upon some of the most remarkable caves he had ever seen. These were spectacular in their size and depth. Composed of what appeared to be limestone, the massive slabs of rock continued their spread throughout the river that covered most of the terrain at this point. Just as amazing, yet somewhat less thrilling, were what he found inside the shallow ends of these caves. Stone kept his distance, but he could clearly make out scattered bones from what he assumed were local moose or similar-sized wildlife. Although, there were some bits that came frighteningly close to looking like a human skull. From this distance, the bones seemed to have been broken by something with large teeth that didn't necessarily shred the meat, but just snapped the skeletons. Stone knew he would have to get moving once he thought he had seen some charred bits on a sample, as if someone or something was barbecuing these kills. Feeling that there would be less mangled bones the farther he ventured away from the caves, he decided to kick pebbles in another direction. As he circumnavigated the river as best as he could, he began to hear large splashing sounds. Immediately, Stone turned toward the source, and hoping to find some campers or anyone who could point them back to the main road, he made a light jog in that direction. As he gained on the origin, he noticed that the splashes were much more violent than he had initially perceived, and with them came a bit of a quake. Stone was a big man but he figured that there must be some Andre the Giant-sized swimmers down there from the magnitude of the tremors they were causing. Said tremors only became more rocky and concerning as he grew closer. Stone slowed his jog down and began to put a bit of a guard up as he continued forward and saw the surface of the river begin to ripple more and more. And just as he thought to himself that there may be a chance that the thing that was quaking the earth underneath him was the same thing that snapped, then fried those carcasses in the cave, the surface began to bubble in an impetuous fury. From out of the Indian River sprang a true-to-God angler, the mythical serpent dragon, making its way right toward the former tag team champion. 
The beast roared with might as it opened its massive jaws, exposing two six-foot-long fangs in an attempt to either swallow the wrestler whole or just crack him into easier-to-chew pieces. Stone shifted his massive weight to the side and just managed to duck the strike, rolling back to a defensive position as he tried to get any grasp whatsoever on what exactly was going on. Fortunately, the monster took its time in finding its footing, allowing Stone to finally get a good look at it. The thing had to be 50 feet long from head to tail, with each scale twice the size of Stone's head. At first glance, it looked like a massive serpent, but it had four fat legs along its body, ending their bulky toes with razor-sharp talons. Its head must have weighed 400 pounds alone. It also had two massive horns above each ear that slicked back as if it had applied pomade to them. As Stone continued to gawk at the monstrosity, it turned its massive skull around and sniffed for its prey, finding the Philadelphian immediately. It hissed with a sonic boom, gnashing its giant fangs and shooting its warm breath clear across the forest enough to cause a sweat to break out on Stone's back. With a flash, the Angon charged forward, fangs first. By pure instinct, Stone spread his base, dug his heels into the dirt, and prepared to go heads up with a mythical being about 300 times his size. Each step came faster than the last, the little quakes themselves nearly knocking Stone off his feet. If there were a crowd present, they'd probably all start booing at what was clearly a squash match. Stone's time was up. After a lifetime spent getting his spine rocked against a canvas, having his nose broken up against a turnbuckle more than a few times, Paul Kneerim was about to be taken out by a legitimate Canadian dragon. There were worse ways to go, one could suppose. Yet, the way it went, Stone had a few more matches left in him. As the dragon closed on the killing blow, a loud howl was heard across the forest. The monster slowed its charge and eventually stopped, turning to find the source. And with a few rotations of its massive skull, it saw a figure atop a cliff just off in the distance. As this figure began speaking again, Stone recognized the promo style. Hey, you dirty swamp rat, Sword began. I heard there was a big guy on campus up here and our little brother to the north, and after seeing those teeth, I can see why you stay in hiding. The Yangon blew steam out of its nose at the insult, unsure what exactly this puny man was aiming at. I don't know if you know anything about Philly, but we got rats down there too. We got scorpions, spiders, and even pieces of twice your size floating through our sewers. Kinda crazy. I had no idea those let out all the way up here in maple syrup land. Then again, now that I think about it, it's really the smell that should have tipped me off. Got a whiff of that the second I crossed the border. The dragon had heard enough. It let out a terrifying roar, this time with a few jets of steam from its nose for good measure. Yet, Sword stood firm and continued pacing back and forth as he added, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember, Mickey Mouse, I'm the guest here. What kind of hospitality is that? Now, my former partner there might find you a little scary, but that's not saying much, is it? I don't really want to get into that. The point is, I'm here now, so unless you want to run back into your little sewer before it freezes up again for hockey season, let's dance. With that sword, ran down the cliff and headed straight for the beast. Like a bolt of lightning, he covered the ground so quickly that the dragon didn't even have time to toss in another warning roar. In an instant, Sword was on it, laying down haymakers and a few nasty kicks in an onslaught attack. His opponent began to cry in pain as the Philly boy only increased his intensity. He quickly slid underneath the scaly belly and got a hold of its foot, grabbing both legs around it and contorting his body into a position wherein he could apply an agonizing pressure to its joints. 
When he pulled hard on what was either the ankle or the knee of the Angon, it screamed in a yelp that rocked everything within a five-mile radius. Unfortunately for the American, the northerner managed to twist around, and once it was in proper position, it was able to fling sword away right into a nearby tree. It then spun around and using its tail as a whip continued to slam the mass of scaly flesh right into the seated sword's belly. Stone stood up, seeing the shoe having made its way to the other foot, and once he realized that this was a no disqualification match and the Angaunt would not be penalized for laying into a wrestler in the corner, he made his way over to interfere. Up close to the beast, Stone was humbly reminded of its gargantuan size, so he figured his best bet was using some technique to gain an advantage. Thinking on his feet, he caught sight of some vines nearby and quickly gathered them. He tied each end to an adjacent tree, creating makeshift ring ropes, and after quickly testing their durability, he made a light jog in the opposite direction, executed a harsh pivot, and ran full speed into the bungee foliage, allowing them to absorb the force and launch him sharply toward the dragon. Like a Mack truck being operated by a freshly tweaked driver, Stone came barreling down the path and put all 300 pounds of his being into the Angon's ribs, knocking it a good 10 feet back, safely away from Sword. As Sword recovered in the corner, Stone continued to stomp and flop onto the creature's feet. Being far too fat and heavy to raise high enough, the dragon was left without recourse until Stone began power slapping its vulnerable underbelly, each hard contact causing the animal to shriek in pain. This was a major revelation to both, as they now had knowledge of what could be the key to this monster's defeat. Unfortunately, the dragon realized at about the same time that it could easily guard against its belly by dropping flat to the ground, which it did right on top of stone, thus neutralizing the attack. Through a gaze of bruises and swelling, Sword tried to see if stone was okay, thinking it unlikely he could survive a multi-ton belly flop. The wounded man got to his feet and found that he had incurred more damage than he had thought. He limped over to the dragon, hoping that by the time he arrived, he could find some kind of adrenaline-boosted attempt to get it off his former partner. But with one more step, the beast again began to shriek. Sword stood back as he saw the long serpent begin to twist, revealing a brace stone underneath, front-squatting the massive form off of him. Stone pressed higher and higher until he hit his full arm-extended length. Right as he realized just how wide this serpent really was and that his height would not be enough to escape it, he felt the Angot begin to twist away from him. Stone got into better position and began finishing the turn as he noticed that it was Sword who had delivered a textbook spear to create the force required for the flip. Having gotten the beast on its back, Stone looked over at his former partner and for a brief moment thought they might be set to begin the process of executing one of their electric finishers, the Stone's Throw, wherein Sword would hop on Stone's shoulder and the latter would spin around like a shot putter and toss the former into the air for a deadly high-flying move of his choice. However, as Stone dared to fantasize about the return of that particular move, he saw Sword climb a nearby tree and instead set up for his personal finisher, Excalibur. Sure as poutine is greasy, Sword executed the move with perfection, and more importantly, lots of style. He dug his elbow full force into the dragon's exposed belly, causing it to scream in agony and roll as best as it could away from the wrestlers. It continued to struggle until it got to its feet, reached the riverbed, and quickly took shelter back into the stream. Stone turned to his former partner and gave just the semblance of a nod to communicate how happy he was to see that the man was okay. It was answered by a similar gesture, indicating that the two were finally on the same page. 
Unfortunately, because of the shock of the events and the mass of sustained injuries, the miracle of that happening was lost on the pair. Anything broken? asked Stone. Maybe a few ribs. What about you? Stone shook his head. My neck feels like hell, but I think I'm good. Still not as bad as the latter match with Dieter and Frankie in Beaumont. Both shared a grimacing laugh at the reference as they began to shake their ailments off and make heads or tails with where they were. Sor paced around a bit and made his best guess. Looks like the sun's setting over there, so we should probably head north. Stone interjected. I don't see any sun. Where are you looking? Well, it's obviously overcast, but it's brighter over there. I'm pretty sure we came up on that side, so north is in the other direction. Sword approached Stone in disbelief. What are you talking about? We came in through that side of the river. Are you stupid or something? Naturally, Stone did not take to the insult well and shoved Sword backwards. Who's the one who got us lost? We had maps and routes all made up, but I guess since we didn't mark him in crayons, you couldn't be bothered to follow along. With this, Sword mockingly laughed. <laughs> wow, Paul, you have some balls. Really going to talk to me about not sticking to the plan? Really? You of all people. Stone turned his back on his partner and waved off his attacks. Yet Zord continued. You know we'd be in the WWF right now if you just did your part. We'd be flying first class with Vince to shows in Dallas instead of getting assaulted by a magical sea serpent. This whole thing's on you, first and foremost. You and your ego, which is somehow even bigger than you are. This brought Stone right back, and he had no qualms getting right into Sword's face to tell him. Do you know anything about this business? Do you know how many wrestlers get starry-eyed when they book their first matches, think they have it made, then get chewed up and spit out by some two-bit promoter? Jesus, we went through a few of those ourselves. Stone broke from the stare and turned away as he continued. Sorry I made a backup plan. Try to find it in your heart to forgive me for not consulting you and what I should do with my career. I forgot only you can make those decisions for me. Don't pretend like you ever cared about our gimmick. Backup plan. It became pretty clear after the Akron botch that you were only using our thing to launch your singles run, replied Sword, which finally broke the attention enough for Stone to come back and thrust his massive hands onto the smaller man's shoulders, easily overpowering him with the grip so ferocious it was nearly cracking his humor eye. Is that what you really think after everything we've been through? Stone said through gritted teeth as he lifted Sword up in the air. You just always gotta run your mouth, don't you? Right as it seemed he was about to slam him back down, the ground again began to shake. From out of the river, the Angon returned, roaring with fury. Stone let down his partner and both beaten men assumed fighting stances. The dragon caught them both in its sights and stood still as they beckoned him, foolishly believing that if they had gotten the better of the beast once, they could assuredly do so again. The Angon put those thoughts to bed immediately as it inhaled a powerful sweep of air. Sword and Stone may not have been experts on mythical sea beasts, but they had seen enough movies to know what a dragon was doing when it inhaled air like that. The two scurried off in separate directions as the serpent unleashed a dark breath of crimson fire in a sweep that reached just enough to singe their heels. Clearly they had both underestimated and royally pissed off the beast, and the odds had once again been stacked against them. True, the pair had been able to add up to an initial whooping of the magical monstrosity, but they had their work cut out for them with these fiery additions. The former tag team found some shelter behind a nearby cliff and once more started to argue. Stone began, If we can just get to the thick part of the brush, that thing can't follow us. If we run into the thick of it, it'll just burn this whole thing down. He's pissed, man. 
We need to get into the water. He can't burn us in there. And you can outswim a goddamn sea dragon? Think about it. He'll snatch us up in no time. And that's if he doesn't have like a family down there. What if there's more of them? Sword began compulsively snapping his fingers in hopes that they'd kindle an idea, but he found no luck with the ritual. God damn it, god damn it, god damn it, god damn it, what do we do? We can't fight that thing. It almost wasted us the first time. Now we're all beaten and bruised and it's shooting fireballs. Stone paused, himself partial to a simple silence and stillness as he searched for that spark of an idea that could save their hides. He found a bit more luck as he began nodding. We'll have to fight it. Are you insane? His partner inquired. What, do you just want the quick death? Stone continued. Look, we can't run. It's too big, and with the fire, it'll get us no matter how fast we can get our sprained ankles to shuffle. What we can do is create a plan. I'm thinking something where we work on the sides. Did you see how thick its neck was? It can't turn that fast, and the fire is the X factor. Neutralize that, and we have the same chance that worked before. But we barely got it down even when it wasn't breathing fire. That's the thing, though. Stone elaborated. We were fighting it like a handicap match. You got your shots in, then I got mine. You hit your finisher clean, but even that wasn't enough to put it away. That thing's not fighting fair. I mean, fire would get a DQ in any normal three-count match. We gotta work the thing at the same time. So there it was. If Kellen Moncton and Paul Knerim wanted to make it to sundown, Sword and Stone would have to ride again. It was the only shot they had. The facts were, when a 50-foot fire-breathing sea serpent had its heart set on cooking you to a crisp, all those differences you might have with your best collaborator don't seem so big anymore. Sword looked at Stone to verify that his partner knew what he was asking. Not only were they going to fight together as a team once more, after years of animosity, but even if they managed to put their differences aside and work for the greater good, that could very well still not be enough. They could act like grown-ups, take the high road, work together like the old days, and still end up flat as a pancake underneath an angon's paw. There had been more than a few times not long ago where these two would have engaged in a scrap for nothing more than a six-pack of Coors Light to split between them. In those days, you couldn't keep Sword and Stone out of a fight, no matter the potential consequences. Shoot, they even had some buzz talks about how they'd consider dying by each other's side in the glory of battle the preferred way to go. Yet... Here they were, debating within themselves if it was worth it to team up and get one last scrap in to save their pitiful lives. When the reality of the situation set in, the thoughts had cleared, and the opportunity presented itself as such, they finally realized there was only one thing for them to do. Sword reached into his imaginary hip sheath, pulled his arm across his body and extended it fully, balling his hand into a fist in a gesture that always kicked off their matches. His sword was immediately pounded down with both fists by stone. The match was on. The dragon continued to pursue the pair behind the cliff, getting right up against the sheltering material when sword shot out to the side. Immediately, the beast roared and sent a line of flames at the speedier wrestler, dove to take cover behind another boulder. Speaking of massive formations of heavy organic material, as the dragon continued his attempt to blacken sword's covering, stone came barreling out of the sky, having launched off the cliff, and landed right on the Angon's skull, bringing his head all the way down to the ground in a fang-chattering clash. Stone rolled over and immediately met with Sword near the beast's back left leg. The pair wasted no time and began firing punches into its ribs as it tried with no success to turn and sweep them away. Being so close to the body, it became impossible for the Angon to use its fire against them, being forced to twist and turn in hopes of stomping the pesky tag team. 
Sword and Stone did not relent, and each time it rose its foot to stomp, they observed the pattern and did their best to time it. Finally, the opportunity emerged, and right as the Angot made a move to stomp the pair, Stone took a step closer and raised his arms to essentially jack up the dragon, preventing it from making any further maneuvers. For that brief moment, the confused beast struggled to balance, and the brevity was all it took for Sword to once again hit it with the spear, sending it straight onto its back. This time around, Sword and Stone made their way to the top of the cliff, and as the beast continued to struggle to get to its feet, the pair prepared for what would become the first chopping block in nearly three years. Now, the chopping block was perhaps the most deadly finisher in Sword and Stone's arsenal. It was the same move that won them all three of their upstate pen wrestling tag team belts, and it was the one they famously used against Jeff and Matt Hardy back in Carolina, leaving everyone who saw that match with the impression that the Philly boys would be the next big thing. Anyway, it was a high-flying move that was as simple as it was effective. In a typical squared circle, Sword and Stone would set up on opposite turnbuckles, and with their opponents in the center, they would perfectly time the jumps. Sword would come in first with his Excalibur elbow drop right in the gut, and a split second after, the poor supine man could expect all 300 pounds of stone to drop like a wrecking ball on his head. Naturally, this would be the first time they would attempt this on a non-human opponent, but it was the best thing they had, and by God, they were going to use it. Sword looked over to Stone and both exchanged nods, followed by a fist bump. Stone ran a bit further down the cliff as Sword loaded his quads and glutes, then sprang off the cliff, trusting his partner to follow shortly. Sword quickly positioned himself properly with his elbow pointed straight down, left forearm supported by his right, and his toes pointed toward the sky. He braced his core, pinning his shoulders back, squeezing his abs, and externally rotating his femurs. The high flyer made contact with the angle right in the fleshiest part of the gut digging firmly into the supple part of the underbelly, causing it to jerk upwards in a forced sit-up, just enough for Stone to come down and hit it right in the throat, sending its skull back down to the hard ground. The beast had been so badly struck that it couldn't even moan. The tag team rolled off him and watched as it writhed in agony on its back, evoking a drop of pity from the opponents. However, this was short-lived as the dragon continued to wiggle, eventually finding its way onto its feet, and once more locking onto the wrestlers. The ailing monster took a deep breath. Well, it tried. About halfway through, it began a violent coughing fit, complete with smoky exhaust. Panicking, it tried to take shorter breaths, but all was for naught. The fire was no more. Hey, Stone, I think you cut off the gas. Sword laughed as he watched the Angon struggle. Guess I did, his partner concluded as he too enjoyed the sight of a weakened mythical creature. Hey, Sword, this is a no-DQ, right? With this, Stone made his way to an old tree off the side, and with little effort, ripped off a thick steel chair-sized bit of bark, handing it to his partner. He then peeled one off for himself, and both banged chairs together before making their way to opposite sides of the beast. Like kids at a piñata, Sword and Stone were all smiles as they laid into the dragon's sides and belly with the thick slabs of bark. The Angon could scarcely stand the agony, even tapping its foot in mercy. Sadly, it did not understand that there are no tap-outs in a no-disqualification match like this one, and the only way it could find mercy was in staying down for the count. Realizing this, the serpent crawled its way back to the cliff as the pair continued to go ham on its ribs. Finally, the beast was close enough to tumble its mangled body into the river, once more disappearing, this time in a rather pitiful splash. Sword and Stone stood over the river in anticipation, beginning the count. One! Two! Three, four, 
five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The partners high-fived and hugged, letting go only to raise each other's arms in victory. With the theatrics having been exhausted, and well-deservedly so, the pair finally sought out and found where their car was. When they got back to it, they retraced their path and got back onto the main road toward their gigs, just in time to grab a few hours of sleep beforehand. Even though both found it hard to sleep, knowing that immediately after this little Canadian excursion, they needed to get in that Philly gym ASAP. Sword and Stone was back, and they had a lot of new moves to work into their sets. Like always, the entire gym was speechless once Leon finished. Most of us knew that the dragon was probably a bit of an embellishment, but the story was so damn good we didn't care. That went double for the Brain Busters, who both shared a look afterwards that was probably something close to the looks the likes of Sword and Stone shared. Those kids were onto something and we all knew it. With a little work and a lot of compromise, there was no telling what they'd accomplish in this business. Leon wrapped it all up by talking about how you gotta go together if you wanna go far. And that means thinking of the bigger picture outside of yourself. No one makes it in this business or in life alone. And that goes for tag teams, stables, and even single acts. It's all about the community you form. The bigger, the better. Then, Leon being Leon, he stood up, gave his lumbar spine a big stretch, and let out a massive belch, getting us all to bust out laughing when he said he was surprised that bad boy didn't come out with a little fire. That was The Ballad of Sword and Stone, the latest Leon Poisson recollection. If you enjoyed the story, make sure you go back and listen to California Cal and Harley Ham if you haven't already. Those are other wrestling stories, and I enjoy writing and recording these so much there will be plenty more to come. Speaking of coming up, we have the Bad Boys at Baldwin Park PD, the season finale next. That is with my new character, Detective Deliana Desarian, as she investigates some misconduct in a police department. It's a mystery, crime in it, definitely want to check it out. So make sure you're subscribed, Spotify, Apple, YouTube. Thank you so much for listening and spreading the word, telling your friends, posting on social media. I appreciate it so much, and I will be back next week.